0: Hallelujah. The Bible says that Jesus would be a stumbling block to the Jews. The Gentiles can see him plainly, but the Jews keep stumbling over him. To the Jews, he's Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that healeth. He's Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom. They know attributes of God. But when you understand and realize that the name of Jesus is the embodiment of Jehovah Rapha, he is Jehovah Nisi. We don't have to call on an attribute of God. When you call upon the name of Jesus, you are summonsing all of heaven under one name. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Aren't you thankful you know the name of Jesus? Hallelujah. Thank you, singers and musicians. As you remain standing, we go to the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Good to see Brother Spence here tonight. Give honor to him. Thankful for his friendship and his ministry. This church loves Brother Spence. We're going to continue tonight to walk through the fruit of the Spirit, and we're going to read verse 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Lord bless you as you're seated tonight in the presence of the Lord. As you remember, this entire uh, study of the fruit of the Spirit is based upon relationships and also uh, what I've been teaching on Sunday. For our Sunday school time, it's based upon relationships. Why? Because relationships are where you exhibit, display, produce the attributes of Christ. If you're a hermit and you never interact with anybody, how will you know if you have love? How will you know if you have patience? Patience. Etc., etc. The only way you know is there has to be someone that requires patience in your life. There has to be a relationship. It's the soil in our garden of life. And what grows in that soil is our choice. It's both amusing and amazing that psychologists can identify. So many universal principles of relationships while still remaining unable to give us any real power to deal with our difficulties. Do you realize that there are more books on marriage and relationships than there ever has been? But there's more divorces than there ever has been. We have more Degrees, people with degrees, more degrees than a thermometer. And yet they still can't fix all the problems. Look at the book titles. There was one man who wrote a book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. There was another book, Men Are Like Waffles, Women Are Like Spaghetti. What they are all saying is basically that opposites attract. And then opposites attack in every kind of relationship. But what they are not telling us is that humanly speaking, we are helpless to keep our relationships truly healthy. I'm talking about as individuals in the flesh. You cannot keep a healthy relationship without the power of God in your life. And in your relationships, I read of an email. A young man wrote his pastor. He hadn't been married very long, and he asked his pastor, rather, he said, I've tried to enforce my preferences in my marriage, but I found that it just didn't work. Can you tell me how to get it to work? He's got a lot of learning. There's an old poem by Ogden Nash that says, to keep your marriage brimming with love in the loving cup. When you're wrong, admit it, and when you're right, shut up. The Holy Ghost is God's spirit within us, and it's primarily given to us to save us and to keep us saved. And don't let anybody tell you that you can be saved without the Holy Ghost. You cannot be saved without the Spirit of God. Without the Holy Ghost, we will not be in the rapture of the church when Jesus returns. That's Romans 8 and 11 and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. Without the Spirit of Christ, according to Romans 8 and 9 and several others, We are none of His, and we do not belong to the family of God. The Bible teaches that we cannot even call Jesus the Lord of our lives, except it be by the power of the Holy Ghost. However, there is a wonderful secondary benefit in that when we have the Spirit of God in our life, God helps us live in our everyday relationships By continually producing the fruit of His Spirit in our life. The only way you can be like Christ is you have to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. So tonight we're going to talk about goodness. Instinctively, humans being know, human beings rather know that it is right to be good. But they have argued for thousands of years about exactly what constitutes goodness. Around the time the New Testament was written, there was ancient Greek philosophers They proposed several ideas about goodness, and I'm going to quote some of them. But each one disagreeing with all the rest. And and even today, there are still certain sects that believe in these uh, theologies. One philosopher said that Good is the experience of pleasure and the eradication of pain. Now this is not biblically based. This is simply philosophers that have developed theories and people believe them. So basically it's saying this. If my pleasure is good, then anything that causes me displeasure is bad. So if, if, Drinking helps me forget life's problems. Then I owe it to myself to just start going clubbing. Never mind the damage that's being done. If, 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 this is, if the good is the experience of pleasure and the eradication of pain, then I pursue pleasure no matter how damaging it is to other areas of my life. That's not really what goodness is. Another philosopher said that good is the acquisition of knowledge and the eradication of ignorance. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, you can't get rid of ignorant people. You can't get rid of ignorance. That's just the bottom line. Brother G.A. Manga, they asked him one time the secret to building a big church, and he said, stay away from idiots. That was what exactly he said. So if you're waiting on the eradication of ignorance, it's never going to happen. It's like the Bible says Jesus said, the poor you'll have with you always. There's some things that they're going to be there. This theory assumes that our educators will always be right. And second, that if we are taught what is good, we will automatically do it. But as our modern lack of values and sophistication of criminals will attest, education alone is not the answer to being good. Still, there's another philosophy that said good is the greatest benefit for the greatest number, and this is the principle upon which democracy is established, because it recognizes that there are always advantages and disadvantages in every situation. So basically it comes down on the side of the most benefit. You still with me? All right. Touch your neighbor and say, don't go to sleep tonight. But obviously, we know that the majority is not always right. For instance, Winston Churchill's decision to allow Coventry to be bombed rather than to alert the enemy by evacuating the city to the fact that their codes had been broken, thus maintaining access to the enemy's plans and hopefully saving many more lives, but literally sacrificing the people of Coventry in the process. The majority is not always right. But then there's a final philosophy that says that good is having goods. And this is the concept that is dominating our nation called materialism. Most people in our country define good in materialistic terms despite the fact that all the evidence suggests that material goods nearly always fail to satisfy and actually can become a curse in a person's life. And what's what's startling is how many people judge the goodness of God by how many goods they have. Because we think Blessed is measured by tangible products, what we can touch,
1: cars and
0: things and clothes and houses, and so we'll say, well, we're blessed. But if that's the case, Paul wasn't a blessed man, and John the Baptist wasn't a blessed man. And all of these apostles were not blessed men if we're going to use a standard of material goods. But can I tell each and every one of us here tonight that if God never gave us anything, we'd still be blessed by the presence of God in our life. I'm thankful for what God has done. But friend, God does not owe us anything. He gives us everything. We ought to thank God right now with a hand clap of appreciation. Each of these philosophies share one common error. And that is that the idea that man on his own can choose what is good for him. The Bible says all the ways of man are right in his own eyes. The Lord pondereth the hearts. There is a concept today called moral relativism which means that you determine what is moral in your own eyes. You determine what is right in your own eyes. And if you look at that in the history of Israel, Every time they started trying to do it on their own, they ended up deeper and deeper and deeper into idolatry and away from God. Friend, God is the only thing that brings that moral compass back to center in our lives and tells us the direction that we're supposed to go. If you leave it up to everybody else, every every person to choose what is good for them, It'd be chaos. It'd be chaos. Because everybody's opinions vary. Look, You can't get people to agree on a restaurant to go eat at. Much less what is good. Because what I want and you want may be different. You may not want ketchup on the macaroni. I do. Because you know what? According to me, it's good. That was my snack when I'd get home from school. I'd make me a, my, my parents wouldn't let me use the uh, the stove or any oven. And so I'd take me a chicken breast. This has nothing to do with my message, but I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit. I'd make me a pot of Kraft macaroni, and I'd get me a chicken breast, and I'd season it. And the only thing I could use was the microwave. And it took about 13 minutes in that microwave. I had so many radio waves coming at me, whatever they are. And that, it would just, zzz, that chicken breast till it was about rubber. And I'd pour ketchup in my macaroni, and that was my after school snack. It's where I learned how to cook. Thank the Lord I do a little bit better. But what is good to you may not be good to me. So you cannot say, well, good is up to you. There has to be a standard that everybody can conform to, that everybody can say, okay, this is Good, And we all strive to match that standard and that its standard is the Word of God. Psychology textbooks and self-help books often give the impression that people are born good and thus can choose good and, and blame our bad experiences for our bad behavior. Now, listen, I do realize that a person's upbringing can affect their adulthood. I'm not making light of that. There's all types of situations that can mold and shape people and make them who they are. But that is not necessarily justification for a person to live however they want to live and say, I will blame it on my childhood. At the root of it all, there is a carnal nature That is dictating you choosing to do wrong. You can't just use that as an excuse. Bible teaches us that people are not born good. They're born with sinful natures. Everybody, I touched on it this this past weekend. Everybody is born. You didn't choose to be born with a sinful nature. You're born with an adamant nature. Even without a bad childhood, you could have the greatest childhood there is and still have that carnal, adamant nature. We are naturally inclined toward rebellion, disobedience, and selfishness. You don't believe me? Look at kids, one and two years old. How many times do you say, don't do that. Don't touch that. And they're just going to look at you and want to do it anyway. Because it's in, it's in their nature. And you've got to teach them. This is why David said, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. It's applicable to us all that nobody had to teach you to make bad decisions when you were young. Nobody had to teach you to do things you were not supposed to do. The Bible also teaches us that regardless of our personal hurts or painful life experiences, each person ultimately chooses their behavior and bears the consequences. Romans 6.16, one translation says, Don't you realize that whatever you choose to obey becomes your master? You can choose sin which leads to death or you can choose to obey God and receive His approval. Finally, the Bible teaches us that we have no power in ourselves to choose the right behavior even if we want to. I'm talking about your flesh. Your flesh is contrary to the Spirit of God. Romans 7, 18 and 19 says, I know I am rotten through and through so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. No matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. When I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. That's because within you is that war between the flesh and the spirit. And it's constant. Listen to me. The Calvary purchased your salvation, but it still takes every day of you letting the Spirit guide your life instead of your flesh guide your life. It takes the Spirit of Christ. So what is the solution? If man is not born good, and he's held responsible to, to, to choose to be good, And he has no power to be good, but yet he must be good to get to heaven. What's the solution? The old Anglo-Saxon word for good was the same word God. Because God is good. And the scriptures overflow with references to the goodness of God. It was the psalmist that declared in Psalm 145 and 9, The Lord is good to all. When God was on the earth in the person of Jesus, the Bible says simply that he went about doing good. Mark 10, 17 and 18, and when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, That is God. Jesus is not denying his divinity. In fact, he's proving his divinity because he's basically saying, do you understand what you just said? Because only God is good. And if I am good, then that must mean I am God. Don't you realize that when when you have God in your life, then you have good in your life. You have the ability and the potential to walk on this earth like Christ and do good. It takes God in us for us to be able to act good. You don't get good to get God. You get God to get good the only solution to our problem the sin problem is the power of the holy ghost in our lives the greek word for goodness is the word soon. it is a it is a rare word that combines being good and doing good so it means that goodness that originates in our heart, but manifests itself in our actions. It literally means to be God-like. Now, it's one thing to talk good, but it's a whole other thing to walk good. I remember when I was preparing this message, I was thinking back, and, and it's weird how certain things trigger certain memories. The Bible says... Turn the other cheek. And it's easy to talk about that. But I remember when I was probably in the fourth grade, I rode the bus to school. And we were sitting in the gym in, in our line for bus. And there was this kid next to me. And I probably was running my mouth. I'm not, I mean, I'll give him that. I I can I can run my mouth. He said something, and the thought, I still remember it. The thought came into my mind, turn the other cheek. And so I just turned my head, literally. I didn't know this was a figurative thing. I did it literally, and when I turned, he cold-cocked me straight in the face. Pow! And then he got up and went and told the teacher what he'd done, and I didn't even have a chance to retaliate. Some things the Bible says are not literal things. They're figurative things. In other words, ignore the person. And by doing that, you're going to throw cold water on that fire and put it out. You have to choose to do good. Not just enough to talk about it. You have to, you have to follow through with it. Our most accurate modern word for goodness would be the word wholeness or integrity. It comes from the same root word as the word integrate. And that literally means I'm going to integrate my heart's values into my daily actions. Thus I become a whole person. Proverbs 28 and 6 says, Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one perverse in his ways, though he be rich. First Chronicles 29, 17 says, I know my God that you examine our hearts and rejoice when you find integrity here. Integrity also involves having the right motives. See, you can do good and be wrong if your motives are wrong. Some people do good only when they're being seen doing good. But their motives are wrong. They're not in it to do good. They're in it to be seen doing good. This is what Matthew 6 and 1, one translation says, take care, don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired because then you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Jesus isn't saying not to do anything good where people can see it because he'd be contradicting everything he did. Everything he did was in public. He wasn't saying don't do anything in public. He was saying make sure your motives are right when you're doing things in public because Jesus was never prideful in anything that he did. He always had the right motives the right reasons for doing it. So he wasn't contradicting his own self. He was just trying to establish if you're going to do good, make sure you're doing it for the right reason. It's not about being seen. It's not about being seen. If we're to be like Christ, the fruit of goodness must be ever growing in our lives. This is what Galatians 6 and 10 says. As we, therefore, have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. I'm just going to say it like this. It ought not be that we are not kind to people of the household of faith. It ought not be that we take advantage of anybody of the household of faith. That's my brother and my sister. And of, of anybody, I ought to be good to them. But it goes beyond just that because Luke 6.27 says, But I say unto you which hear, love your enemies. Do good to them which hate you. That, that's a whole different ball game. Because we want to be good and do good to people that we go to church with. That's easy. You do good to me, naturally. I want to be nice to you. I want to do good to you. But Jesus said, if you're going to be like me, you also have to love the very people that hate you. The very people that despitefully use you the ones that you don't want to love and you don't want to do good to, that's where you find out if the fruit of goodness is producing in your life. Because our natural tendency is to dislike those that dislike us and to like those that like us. That's just how we are. That's how we're wired. Let me tell you, Jesus produced the most goodness to the people that treated him the worst. The worst. In fact, he was so good to them that he died for them. Knowing full well that they would probably never receive his spirit or his invitation, but he loved them so much. And that goodness was so strong that he went to Calvary for. Stand with me right now. As our musicians come, Paul gives us two practical principles for being good. Romans 12 and 9 says, Be sincere in your love for others. Hate everything that is evil and hold tight to everything that is good. But then that second principle, Romans 12, 21 Do not be overcome by evil. But how do you overcome evil? With good. With good. Let me tell you, I have seen people so mad, mad. And I have watched preachers deal with them in such a loving manner that it defused the whole situation. Because the Bible says love never fails. It never fails. I remember I was evangelizing and I was in prayer at the church and it was as clear as if the Lord showed it on a TV screen. I was standing by that pastor's desk, and I had my hand out like that. And he was standing there with his hand out like that. And I said, Brother so-and-so, open your hand in, in the vision. I said, Brother so-and-so, open your hand. And he put his hand out like that. And I said, The Lord told me to tell you that you've got to pastor this church with an open hand because he's going to take people out, and he's going to put people in. And as long as you're holding on, he can't do either. I said, keep your hand open. I went to church that night, and I walked in that pastor's office, and I said, brother, come stand right here. And I took him to that spot where the Lord showed me. And I stood where the Lord showed me, and I said, open your hand. And I put my hand out. He opened his out, And I said, this afternoon, the Lord showed me this vision, and I'm going to do exactly what the Lord showed me. And I, re- I recited the whole thing just like the Lord showed me. And I said, there. I don't know what it means, but the Lord knows. And that night, while we're eating supper after service, he gets a phone call. And it was one of the larger families in his church, the man called and said, we're not coming back. I mean, just a couple of hours. And while he's talking, the Lord showed me who it was. And I told him when he hung up, I said, That's brother so and so. And no, I didn't hear the conversation. I the Lord showed me. I said, That's brother so and so. And I said, The Lord gave you a word. And it's easy, it would have been easy for him to get defensive, but you know what? Because the Lord gave him a heads up, he was able to respond in such a Christ like manner with the goodness and the love of God. It's not easy. For goodness to flow out. But if you got the Holy Ghost on the inside, it's possible to love your enemies. To do good to them which despitefully use you. I don't know about you tonight, but I think every one of us is starting with me. Needs that goodness to flow just a little bit more every day. Every day. I wonder tonight as we make our way to this altar, If we could ask the Lord to let the fruit of goodness flow out of our heart like never before.